As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. A family member was his political inspiration, but now he has chosen a life on the road away from his own young family. He's not calling for tuition-free four-year college yet, and he wants you to know that you can still fly in an airplane or eat barbecue brisket if he becomes president. I'm Dave Price. Democrat Julian Castro is our guest in this episode of The Price of Politics, etc. Twin brothers in the same profession. Tiki and Rondé Barber were twins. They both played in the National Football League. Mark and Scott Kelly were the first astronauts who were twins. And Julian and Joaquin Castro both chose politics. Joaquin is a congressman in San Antonio, Texas. And Julian wants to be your next president. I am a candidate for president of the United States of America. That was January 12th. 2019, and as you heard, Castro paid tribute to the grandmother who helped inspire him to get into politics. Castro's been in politics for the past decade. He started as a mayor of San Antonio, then he was Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under President Barack Obama. But these days, he's focused on becoming the next president, so we begin our next conversation with him about the twin thing. How did you and your brother both get involved in politics? Well, you know, my brother Joaquin and I uh, grew up with my mother and my grandmother. And my grandmother had come over from Mexico when she was a little girl. And um, she really didn't like politics. Uh, She was fairly traditional. But my mother was a hellraiser when she was young. She was involved in the old Chicano movement, the Mexican-American Civil Rights Movement. And she just picked it up on her own since her own mom? Yeah, you know, I think uh, she went to... 16 straight years of Catholic school, um, but picked up on this sort of social justice aspect of it. And so when Joaquin and I were growing up, she would take us to speeches and rallies and we'd hand it out out leaflets at different, uh, you know, election day events. So I kind of grew up around this healthy sense that you should participate, that you can make a difference, um, make things better by participating in our democracy. And I got interested in actually running for office when I went away from my hometown of San Antonio because I had grown up there on the west side of that city in the public schools. Uh, And when I went away to college at Stanford, it was the first time that I could see that community through different eyes and see all of the improvement that needed to be made. And my interest initially in getting into public service was you know, how could I be a part of making a difference so that more people could have the kind of opportunity that I'd had. And do you, you're raising a son and a daughter, do you talk politics with them? Do you talk issues with them? How do you bring them up in this? Uh, You know, a little bit more with my daughter, Karina. She's about to turn 10. And of course, uh, you know, when the news is on or, um, you know, she's on her iPad a lot and 
Probably uh, too much if she's typical. I, yes, for sure. <laughs> you know, we're still trying to figure out the limits on that, like a lot of parents are. But yeah, you know, um, I don't get this. She's not overly political. We don't talk about it all the time, but sometimes we do. And there's some issues, like uh, around immigration, for instance, that, uh, and especially down there in Texas, that are so big um, that even young children get a sense of what's going on. Uh, because of your proximity there, of where you are in Texas, how do you view what the president is trying to do with this wall? Now, in the end, clearly we're not going to get this big, shiny wall like he talked about when he was campaigning in our state and elsewhere, but it would appear we're at least going to probably extend some kind of fencing, gates, whatever, whatever it is. There are some who say that because of his insistence on a wall or something like that, that it is racist. Is it? Well, what I say is that it's ineffective. Uh, number one, the level of the number of people that are coming across the southern border today, the apprehensions of them, is at the lowest level since the 1970s. The fact is that uh, more people who end up undocumented in this country now are undocumented because they overstayed their visa, not because they came across the southern border. Uh, and uh, putting a wall up or fencing across the entire length of the border is not a solution. You know, we've seen people dig tunnels, we've seen people uh, try and go through or over fencing. So you know, I think ultimately it's a big waste of money and we can invest in things like more personnel and better technology at our ports of entry. A couple of weeks ago, there was a 254 pound bust of fentanyl, which was the largest fentanyl bust in our nation's history, I think, in Arizona. There's not a single thing that a wall would have done to stop that because that was brought over through a port of entry. We need to do a better job of securing those. What is the fairest way to handle those families who are living in our country who are undocumented, who are already here? Well, I believe that, uh, that there should be an earned path to citizenship. If people who are here who are undocumented are otherwise law-abiding, then they should have the opportunity to get on a path to citizenship. Uh, you know, some people also ask, well, what about people who did it the legal way? They actually apply for, you know what, I agree. We need to improve both of those things. We need to improve uh, our process for getting legal citizenship. There's no reason that somebody should wait 10, 15, 20 years. And at the same time, we can deal uh, humanely with people who are here, uh, who have otherwise been law-abiding, who are hardworking, uh, who just want to, to be able to stay here and contribute. And um, this president has made some people think that we have to make this choice between having a secure border and being compassionate as Americans have often been. That's a false choice. I disagree with that choice. And what I would do is make sure that we make the right investments so that our border is always secure, but also that we recognize that these are human beings and, and also that they're contributing a lot to the forward progress of this country. What do you say to people who are compassionate to these families and understand how most of them have come here for reasons to better their family, provide opportunities both in our country and then in so many cases sending money back home wherever that should be, but that giving them a path to citizenship, even if they have been law-abiding citizens, kind of rewards them for breaking the law. So why shouldn't they have to go back home, go through the legal process, and then come back? Well, I think we can construct a process where, as I said, people have to earn that citizenship. 
Uh, if they have to pay a fine, there are other things that they can do. You know, I don't think that it should be, you know, from one day to the next, you're a citizen of the United States. It should be an earned path to citizenship. It's also, I think, more realistic than thinking we're going to solve this problem by building a wall. Uh, let me just say one more thing about uh, the issue of a wall. You know, there are a lot of reasons to be against it, and the majority of Americans are. But one reason that I'm against it is that I fundamentally believe that the moment we construct that wall, we're going to change the notion of America, of who we are, from this nation of the Statue of Liberty that is welcoming, uh, that is a beacon to the world, to a country that literally and figuratively walls itself off from the rest of the world. And that's not who we want to be going forward. So much of the early discussion on the democratic field here involves economic issues. A lot of it involves health care. So this concept of Medicare for all, some people have different, different ideas, of course, about what this is. In our state, we have an estimated three to 4,000 people who work directly in the health care, health insurance business. What happens to those folks if we go to this Medicare for all? The United States is uh, really the, the only developed country that has not already figured this out. I would ask folks to think about why is it that countries that are less wealthy than this country, that have been less successful than this country, have been able to offer universal health insurance or universal health care to their people. It's time that the United States does that. What does that look like? That's the subject of debate right now. Uh, I support Medicare for all. I believe that anybody who wants to avail, avail himself or herself of Medicare should be able to do that. Countries do this differently around the world. And so if somebody wants to have a supplemental plan or a private health insurance plan, I think they should be able to. But I also don't believe fundamentally that the profit motive should determine whether a human being in this country is able to get care for their diabetes or their heart condition or for some other affliction when they need it. So in your mind, we would still have some private health insurance here if, if a person chose that as more of a secondary? That's right. Kind of an added benefit. And so what would, that, the, what would they use that for? Well, again, this can look different in, in different countries. Here in the United States, uh, you know, there have been a number of proposals. During the course of this campaign, I look forward to laying out my own proposal. Um, you can do that right now if you want. <laughs> yeah. We're just getting started, <laughs> Dave. Right, We're just getting enough. started. We still have like 50 <laughs> weeks until the uh, Iowa caucus. But, um, you know, people have also asked, how do you pay for it? Which I think is a fair question. And during the course of the campaign, I look forward to putting forth a plan on how it would be paid for. Um, what I would ask folks to think about is that right now there's a lot of money in this system that basically is wasted. Um, and we can create a better system that makes sure that when you and your family need health care, good health care, that it's there for you. Uh, because we know that for so many American families, including a lot of families here in Iowa, that's just not the case right now. We also talk about the Green New Deal. I feel like this is another one of those things that's kind of a big old concept. And, you know, we'll sort of work our way to finding out what specifics are. And it feels like it probably means different things to different people. So let's talk specifically about our state. Um, if this idea of eliminating our use of fossil fuels in a decade, as some have talked about, 
how does ethanol play into that? So does that mean, should we, should we look at it that a decade from now, ethanol is not part of the fuel system? Well, I think as, as uh, we see now that ethanol will continue to play a role. Um, when people talk about the Green New Deal, you're right, that people have, I think, different, right now, there are different definitions of that. Uh, and there's legislation that has been introduced. I'm excited about this because I think that we can both protect our planet and also create jobs and stimulate our economy. You know, and I've seen that even in my home state, um, in the solar industry, in the wind industry. And again, some people want us to believe that there's this false choice between protecting our planet and economic growth. And actually, we can have both of those things. And we're already seeing that, you know, whether it's uh, solar panel installers or folks who work for uh, companies in the wind industry or other renewable energy uh, companies, there is tremendous economic potential there. And I think that with a Green New Deal, we can take advantage of that in the future and that states like Iowa can benefit tremendously from it. Uh, some of the early mocking of this has been, you're not, we're not gonna eat meat anymore, we're not gonna fly in an airplane anymore, we're not gonna drive in a car anymore unless it's electric. How do, how do you push this conversation forward to get past that? Well, look, you know. I'm assuming it, you don't believe in I any mean, of those things, the right? The thing about Iowans is that they, they follow politics uh, and politicians much more than a lot of Americans because they, I know already that they take their responsibility seriously as the first people to caucus in these primaries. And so you know, the folks that are listening, that, that that's ridiculous. Um, let's take the example of that some people have thrown out that there would be no more um, you know, commercial airplanes or, or flights. What people are proposing is that we have a better system, for instance, of high-speed rail um, in this country so that you have alternatives. Uh, and Texas is a good example, my home state. For a long time, people have wanted high-speed rail between San Antonio, Dallas, Houston, uh, Austin, right there in the middle of all Which of that. Four very large metropolitan areas. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, you have a state like Texas that is very spread out and um, it could be well served by high-speed rail. But same thing, if somebody wants to go from Des Moines to uh, Denver or Des Moines to Chicago, it is an alternative that I think that we should invest in. And again, this is not breaking new ground. There are countries around the world, Japan is a good example, that have already invested in these kinds of things. And so some people try to mock this, but what it's about is making sure that in this 21st century economy, we can both protect our planet, be environmentally responsible, and also create great new jobs that pay well for people here in Iowa and all Americans. Your wife is a teacher. Um, your dad was a teacher too, right? He was, 31 years, yeah. A uh, long time, obviously. Uh, having family members who are directly part of the education system, how do you view our needs of public education going forward, and where do you think as a country we are not meeting those needs? Where, what I see out there is that we live in a world today in which the United States is competing and collaborating against countries, China, India, others, that are producing tons and tons of well-educated young people that are uh, intelligent, ambitious, creative. You know, in this new world that we're competing in, that means that we literally don't have a single person to waste. 
Jobs today require more skill and more education than ever before. You know, it's estimated in the years to come that uh, two-thirds of jobs are going to require more than just a high school diploma. So I believe that we need to invest in universal pre-K, that we need to incentivize our states to do things like reduce their class size. For you, that, that's four-year-olds, right? That's right. Okay. That's right. Uh, that when it comes to K through 12 education, we need to pay teachers what they deserve. Uh, we need to uh, reduce class sizes. Uh, we need better accountability, I think, in the system, but in a way that does not rely on just the standardized tests so the teachers are only teaching to the test. And we need universal higher education so that if somebody wants to go to grade 13, basically, to go beyond high school uh, to a community college or an apprenticeship program, certification program, or even a state university, that they're able to do that and do it tuition free. And the thing is that that used to be the case. In a lot of these state university systems, it used to be tuition free. So this is not something that is radical or out of the box. This is something that in the United States, when we were rising as a nation, we actually made a commitment to. And that's something that helped us, helped us grow and become the most dominant nation in the world. We need to make that kind of commitment again. And that's where you separate a little bit in the sense that you want tuition free for community colleges. You don't go all the way to four year, right? No, I believe that we should at least have two year and that we can get to four year um, because we've had uh, free state university uh, tuition, you know, before in California, in uh, a number of other states. 2016 already showed how difficult it can be for a candidate in a very crowded field. Of course, it was the Republicans back then, 17 candidates. Donald Trump was one of them. He would say something controversial or tweet something controversial, and then the media would get the others to respond. Trump dominated the news back then, and the others would get crowded out. So I asked Castro how he can stand out in this large Democratic field in 2020. You're right that it's a crowded field. Uh, first of all, we're going to do all of the basic blocking and tackling of campaigns, and y'all have seen a lot of that, right? I mean, I'm, I'm here. I'm here for the next few days. We're going to be back to Iowa, to New Hampshire, to these early states a lot, talking to the people here in Iowa, listening to them. Um, but here's why I think I'm going to stand out. I, I believe that people are ready for the opposite of Donald Trump and that I represent uh, the antidote to Donald Trump, where he's trying to divide people. I want to unite Americans behind a common vision of becoming the smartest, the healthiest, the fairest, and the most prosperous nation in the 21st century, uh, where he has shown a lack of integrity. Uh, I think throughout my career, I've shown um, integrity and honesty. Uh, he's a president for a 37% base that he continues to pander to. I don't believe in that. I'm going to be a president for all Americans. And he himself says that he's trying to make America something again. I don't want to make this country anything again. I want to make this country better than it ever has been. And so I represent the future, and he represents the past. And I'm going to go out there and, uh, and share that vision that I have with Iowans over the next 50 weeks until the Iowa caucus uh, and people throughout the United States. And, Right now, I'm not the front runner, um, but where I grew up, nobody that was born there or grew up there was a front runner. And I bet here in Iowa, 
there are a lot of folks that don't feel like they're a front runner in life. I look forward to talking to them. There has been an explosion of women who are involved in politics. We just last November elected the first two Iowa women to ever serve in the U.S. House. Cycle or so before then, Joni Ernst became the first woman to go to the United States Senate. There are clearly a lot of female competitors in this race on your side. Bernie Sanders has already talked about he might choose a woman as his running mate and thinks he probably will. How do you view that? Is it is it actually a a deterrent to be a man in this race in the sense that so many women are part of campaigns in some form or another? Uh, you know, I'm not sure if that's a sexist question. <laughs> no, it's a, hopefully it doesn't I, I sound like one. I wouldn't say that. First of all, I would say that all of us who, who are men should recognize um, all of the way that we've been advantaged in life simply by being a man. And so I would not say um, to, to people in this race or otherwise, oh, look, I'm at a disadvantage because I'm a man. There's so many different advantages in, in society, and it's something that we need to, to continue to work on and correct. But the neat thing about this uh, campaign is that men and women, you have very, very talented people with their own ideas, their own voices, their own experience. Uh, all I can say is that for myself, you know, I have a proven track record of getting things done as mayor of San Antonio, as uh, cabinet secretary in the Obama administration. I believe that after what we've seen with President Trump, people are looking for somebody that has a track record of actually being able to get things done in government uh, and being able to work with the public sector, the nonprofit sector, and the private sector to get those things done. I also have a compelling vision for the future of our country. Um, so, uh, yeah, there are going to be a lot of, of different voices, and I just look forward to getting out there and sharing my own perspective. Uh, speaking of women, perhaps the most important woman in your life is your wife. How do you have the conversation with her about what life will be like for her? Because clearly it's not fair as the spouse, right? You and I are standing right here, and your wife is not here. She's back home taking care of the kids and everything else in your life, right? So how do you sit down with that and have that initial conversation about, honey, I'm thinking about running for president, and let's talk through what that means for our family. Because you were in a position as a younger guy in your 40s, you have two young children at home. So you're going to be on the road a ton, right? And they're probably not going to be able to travel with you a lot. So how do you weigh whether this is my time and what this means for my family back home? You know, that's the hardest part. The hardest part is that I have a daughter, Karina, that's about to turn 10 and a son, Christian, that just turned four at the end of the year. Um, and these are precious days with them as they're growing. Uh, and you know, this trip is a good example. I'm going to be gone for, the next, for basically four days, and then I'm there at home for one day, and then I'm gone for another two or three days. And so that's difficult. You know, I'm doing this like I'm sure the other candidates are doing, because I believe that I can make this country better for my own children, and for children across the country um, so that we have an America where they can prosper and they can reach their dreams the way that I feel I've been able to reach my dreams. Uh, on May 26th, my wife Erica and I uh, will celebrate uh, the 20th anniversary of our first date. Uh, and on our first date, I told Erica that you know, I was thinking about one day running for mayor of San Antonio. And I think she looked at me like I was crazy or something. Uh, so you're she, like early yeah, 20s I mean, we never, at this point, right? Yeah, I think I was, uh, I was 24, okay. and she was 20. 
Um, but we've known each other now for 20 years. And she was there with me before I was ever in politics. Um, she has been fantastically supportive the whole way through. I'm just completely grateful because you know, you're right that you know, Erica, in this case my wife, ends up picking up most of the burden of bringing up our children. And she also works in one of the public school districts in San Antonio. And so I'm immensely grateful for that. And I think about that all the time. Um, one of the things that I'm trying to do these days is to FaceTime my kids on a regular basis, you know, every day when I'm out of town. Uh, I'm thankful for that technology because it allows you to actually see your kids now. Uh, so, you know, it definitely takes some getting used to, um, but I wouldn't be in it if I didn't think that as president, I could create a better United States and a better world for them. Why now, though? You, in theory, could have waited 10, 15 years. Maybe they're off to college or beyond. Um, what, what made you th know that right now is your time to run for because, this job? Uh, because I think that people are looking for the opposite of Donald Trump, and, and I believe that I represent the opposite of Donald Trump. And um, you know, some people have asked, well, you're only 44, I'd be 46 if I'm elected. But actually, what we've seen is that in the modern era of politics, since Kennedy, uh, all of the Democrats who won the presidency were young. Kennedy was 43 when he took office. I think Carter was the oldest at 50 or 51. Clinton was 46, and Obama, I think, was 47. So for those of us who are in our 40s, yeah, we're, that's nothing special um, because that's something that other people have done. We close with a little Iowa flashback with Castro. It was September 15th, 2013. Happened to be the second-to-last Harkin Steak Fry, a much-watched event all over the country. Iowa Senator Tom Harkin would have these steak fries as a big annual fundraiser, and he would bring in some big Democratic guests. Sometimes they were up-and-comers. Well, in 2013, both those things. You had Castro as the young up-and-comer, and then Vice President Joe Biden. They were the featured speakers. And here's a little taste of both of them at the podium. What is the blueprint that America should follow to ensure prosperity in the years to come? It's amazing when you come to speak at the steak fry, a whole lot of people seem to take notice. I don't know why the hell that is. No doubt, Mr. Vice President, Iowans definitely paid attention to the speakers who would get the invite and who would show up at this Harkin steak fry. Of course, back then, Castro got overshadowed by the VP, but now five and a half years later, it is Castro trying to make a more lasting impression on Iowans. Thanks for listening to this Price of Politics, etc.